Welcome to the Or Halev podcast with Rabbi James Jacobson Mazels. So we've been talking the last few weeks about liberation, about freedom. Uh, because we've been between Pesach and Yom Atzmut, but we're going to continue. <laughs> haven't finished yet after Yom Atzmut. And um, what we've talked about so far is we talked about the notion of freedom in the sense of having the perspective and the ability to make choices, to not be caught in our instinctive reactivity, right? To have some perspective, and therefore the liberation that brings an expansiveness that brings into our lives. We've talked about liberation with emotion. Now we can relate to our emotions widely, wisely by fully opening to them and being fully present with them without being lost in them. Right? In the Pizetsu, we use that metaphor of the house, of being present in your house, asking Ayeka, where are you present in your house? As the emotions come to visit, they're knocking on the door. We don't want to shut the door in their face. We don't want to let them trample us and run over our faces. We just want to sit there in our house and be open and allow the emotions to come and emotions to go. And today, I want to talk a little bit about desire. How we are free and get liberated in relationship to our desires, in relationship to the wanting we have. All the time, wanting, 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 wanting. So the first helpful thing to notice is how much you want. I don't know if you notice it, but it's great to try to notice it in your practice. And a lot of the time, if not most of the time, you are wanting. Wanting, 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 wanting. Wanting things to be a certain way, wanting things to turn out a certain way, wanting to have certain things wanting to have certain people, wanting to have certain experiences, right? Whatever it is you're wanting, just a kind of, there's a general background hum, a hum of wanting. And the Pizetzner says, um, he says, you know, it's that's the nature of, of desire, which is that it just flows, shotfot, just flows. Like thought, it gets caught one in the next, and desires just proliferate, always wanting, always wanting, always wanting. And sometimes we may not notice the wanting that much. I was just recalling earlier today, when I started practicing, um, I, there are different, when we, we talk about this practice, we can talk about different personality types very broadly. I'm going to describe three personality types right now, and you can just check out which one you fit into, and you may be an overlap, right? They're not pure models or anything, it just helps us see things. So, one is the aversive type. That's the one that I most strongly fit into. <laughs> and that means that we have an instinctive reactivity of aversion to the world. And it's like um, we enter a room and we notice what's wrong, right? <laughs> you enter like a classroom, as a teacher, some organization, like you notice what's not going right, right? What's the problem? What needs to be fixed? What's, right? what's the problem? What's, 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 what's not right here? What do I need to change? So that's the aversive type. And, you know, often you'll experience classic aversive experiences. So, um, you know, anxiety, anger, right, not wanting the world, running away from the world in certain ways, hiding, right? So that's a typical way one might react to the world. The second type is the desirous type, right? So you might walk into the world, into a room and think, ooh, that's nice, right? <laughs> ooh, that, oh, I want that, oh, I want that, that person looks nice, I want them, right? <laughs> or that cake looks nice or that, whatever, right? You walk in and the first thing your eyes picks up is like, 
what's nice here, what do I want, what's enjoyable, what's right. Um, and, and the quality, the inclination of that type is to get lost in desire, right? So the most strongest example of that is addiction, but like just all the different ways you want to like, um, something goes wrong, um, you get a hot chocolate, right? <laughs> the aversive type, somebody goes wrong, you look for somebody to blame, right? <laughs> Right? So it's like, what's your, what's your response? When it goes wrong, it's like I go out and buy myself something new, right? To feel a bit better, right? Desirous, pleasure-seeking, sense-seeking, right? Or like seeking sense-pleasure, seeking pleasure. That's what makes us feel better, right? And of course, we can all have multiple moods of this. It's not that we're just stuck in one, right? And the third is the ignorant type, right? So the ignorant type walks into a room, and they just feel kind of confused, Right, it's like, not really sure what to do, kind of spaced out, who do I talk to, not sure what's going on. Um, their tendency is to check out, right? It's like, oh, kind of numbed out, zoning out, right? <laughs> not paying attention, not getting affected by anything, not getting scared by anything, or nothing bad, because I'm not really engaging. I'm just kind of checked out, my mind's elsewhere. This stuff is happening, right? <coughs> And why am I mentioning this? I mention this because I'm an aversive type. It's one of my qualities. I, of course, have all the other qualities as well. And, um, and at the beginning of the practice, and for a while, I would practice. And first of all, I wouldn't notice any desire. As far as I could tell, there was no desire arising. And second of all, as far as I could tell, there was no thought arising. For a long time I practiced, no thought. I was like, I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> You're talking about like, having all this thought arise. I don't see that. No thought arising, right? Um, basically because my aversive emotions were arising so strongly, right? There was no space to see the desire or the thought that were arising. Like, they were just not the most prominent sensation. The most prominent sensation was fear, you know, and anxiety. So I wasn't noticing any of the rest of it. Like, you know, as far as I was concerned, I wasn't having thoughts. I wasn't bothered by thoughts in my meditation practice, right? All I was bothered by was fear, basically, and different manifestations of fear in its various ways, right? But then, as I started to relate more wisely to the fear, and so space started to open up, surprise, surprise, oh, also desire, right? <laughs> also one thing is happening all the time. Oh, also thought is happening all the time, right? Like, of course these things are happening. They're just happening in me. And as there's more space that's available to see, I can see the operation of these things as well, right? <clears throat> and there's no problem with that. I mean, that's the first thing to see when we're talking about liberation in response to desire. <coughs> the first key thing is to see that there's no problem with the fact that desire is arising all the time. Of course, desire is arising all the time. We want stuff. Why wouldn't we want stuff? And in fact, you know, think about it evolutionarily, right? The people who were out there always looking for the food, the safety, the whatever, the pleasant-looking thing are probably the people who made it, right? Because they were like, oh, I found the pleasant-looking thing, and I ate it, and now I have enough food, right? <laughs> so it makes total sense that we're on the lookout for things that are going to support us. And it's no problem, actually, that we're on the lookout for things that are going to support us. The question is, how do you relate to the things, that, to this desire, to the wanting? Right? That's the question. The question is how we relate to it. Maybe I'll tell a little story about that and then go to the teaching of Pizetzner. So uh, the Dalai Lama once was visiting a monastery in America, a Christian monastery. And this monastery made a cheese and fruitcake, right? That's what they did. 
and he was turning around, and we had lovely times in the monastery, and, you know, showed everything, and, okay, whatever, you know, the whole thing. And at the end, they offer him, like, this big thing of cheese. And he's like, oh, thank you. The whole time, I was hoping somebody would offer me a piece of cake. <laughs> he's like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> it's like, just noticing, like, he was walking around, and he was just experiencing desire. He was like, oh, they made cake. I hope they give me a piece of cake, right? <laughs> and that's okay, right? <laughs> Nothing wrong with wanting a piece of cake. But can have that kind of gentleness and laughter about it, which is just like, of course I was wanting cake. How funny, right? And it's totally okay if I don't get the cake. But I don't have to deny that I was wanting the cake, right? It's not like I'm like some spiritual failure because wanting for the cake was arising. It's like, oh, cake sounds nice. Why wouldn't I want a cake if I was in a place that made cake, right? That's very natural. <clears throat> so what the possessor says, he says, what is it that is able to make us a slave? What is it that would make us a slave? It is the clothing of the body. And, you know, people say the possessor, we have to be specific what that means. It doesn't mean that the body is bad. It means, as we'll see here, a specific kind of dualistic desire and relationship to a specific kind of desire, which we'll see in a second. A person must make it so that his enclothings and these vessels are not his essence, but rather he can strip them away. So he has to actually investigate if his clothing, his clothing has become his essence. What does that mean? I'll give the example. When some quality comes to him, he loves something, he wants something, or he's scared of something, right? He experiences desire or aversion. He should strip away the thing, the object, and remain with the love or aversion itself, and then he can sort of use it in any way he wishes, use it in a way which is effective. So what is he, what's he talking about there? Let's unpack that a little bit. <clears throat> so the first thing he says is you have to notice, and here we're going to concentrate on desire, so that's what he goes on to concentrate on, although we can say it as well with our experiences of aversion. Is desire arising in you, just arising, and it's just desire that's arising, or the desire has become you, right? Has it become your essence? You are identified with the desire, right? And you can notice that because when you're identified with the desire, then it's terrible if you don't get what you desire, right? Terrible if you don't get what you desire, right? And right, this is usually not the case with us like wanting the cake, although we get tangled up in that a little bit, right? But it is the case with us wanting the job, the partner, the child, the acknowledgement from somebody, the being seen, right? It's like, I am this job, this success, right? So I want that. I want that success totally fine. That desire for success is arising, right? But I get identified with that. And then, if it doesn't happen, I have a void, right? Then it's really painful if it doesn't happen. Because then, actually, I have been violated then I'm a failure, right? Then I'm no good. Then I'm worthless, 
right? All that terminology, all that terminology, all the shame, only arises because we're identifying with the desire, right? If we don't identify with the desire, there's no shame, and there's no worthlessness, and there's no failure. I might have failed at this thing. That's okay, right? <laughs> That's just what happened. I tried that thing, and I didn't succeed at it. That happens all the time, right? <laughs> but I'm not a failure. I can only be a failure if I've identified with the desire. I've identified with doing that, and all of a sudden it becomes about me, right? I, it's me, and now I'm a failure. Now that's really painful, right? It's painful to be a failure. It's actually not painful to fail at things, right? If we're not identified with them. And you can notice that. We you notice that is that, you know, think about, I don't know, something you're just doing for fun, and you have no, like, you're not invested in it. But it's just like fun, you're doing it. It's like you're trying out ceramics for the first time. Oh, your ceramic thing is all wobbly and doesn't look straight, right? It's like, it's fine actually, right? There's no problem, you're not upset about it. It's like, this was fun, I tried, it turned out this way, it wasn't that great. Look, isn't that great, right? But the things that you are invested in in the sense of yourself is identified with them, right? Then when it doesn't work out, it's not okay. It's not okay. And then it's incredibly painful. And then, of course, there's a whole series of consequences to that. First consequence is, because we anticipate and are terrified of that pain, we relate to those things which we desire, and the people around those desires and our own experience, in really unhealthy ways. Right? So we're like completely tense and driven and neurotic about making sure that the desire works out the way we want it to work out. Right? And God forbid somebody should get in our way between ourselves and that desire. We're not actually going to relate to that person with sort of compassion, clarity, seeing them fully. We're going to be like, get out of our way, in one way or another, right? Whatever that means in that circumstance. Because you stand between me and what I need to get, right? And in some ways that can be, you know, like really crazy ways. Like the crazy things you hear about people relate to each other in an office and like undercutting each other, etc., right? And it can be just more like mundane ways, like we're not fully open or we're not ready to share or we feel threatened about our position, right? Or we're gonna like not fully support people in something else because we feel like it threatens us. Or as one of my uh, friends said, Dan Smoker, he says, you know, well, why did you write that book at me? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> that feeling sometimes. It's like nothing to do with us at all, right? <laughs> but for us, the person has done whatever they've done that's in our field and we were supposed to do or whatever it is, you know, is at me. It's challenging me, it's negating me, it's negating desire, threatening in some way, right? And when we get lost in that place, right, then it's the same question which he asked before in relation to our emotions, sort of ayeka, where are you? Where you are is lost. You have become the desire. And that's a bad story, right? That's not healthy. It's not helpful. So the question is, how do we untangle that? How do we stop ourselves from falling into being the desire? And this is the advice he gives, which is really practice instructions. Can we step back and separate from the object of the desire and the experience of desire itself? Right? They're not the same thing, notice. There is the object of desire, whatever it is you're wanting, and there is the wanting. Right? The wanting. When we get caught in identifying, there's no space between the wanting and the object and ourselves. Those are all one thing. I want that. Right? That's what it's like. I want that. No space. But when we step by and can observe the desire, 
we can observe actually the desire itself, the wanting itself, without getting lost in the object. And the way we do that, in my experience, is we turn to the felt experience of wanting in the body. Right? So wanting actually has a texture to it. It's got a feel to it. It's got that kind of pulling forward, tightness in the chest. That's how I feel it. You might feel it in a different way. That's totally fine. There's not one way to feel it, right? But there will be an experience in the body of wanting itself. And if we can be firmly and really quite courageously with the wanting in the body, then we can experience and explore and get some wisdom around wanting itself, right? And then we can actually see certain things. One thing we might see, for instance, is that often the wanting is coming out of fear, right? There's some fear, there's some worry, we're not going to have enough, we're not going to be okay, and the wanting is going to make us okay, it's going to make us safe in some way, right? One great way to notice this, for instance, um, my friend Yale Shai taught me this. She said, if you experience anxiety or fear in some way, ask yourself, what do I want? Ask yourself, what do I want? And often just noticing, I've found just really noticing what is it I want and owning that allows the anxiety to fall away. It's like, oh, I want to be safe. Oh, Okay, just owning that I want to be safe. It's not so terrible. It's not so... You know, I want to be loved. I want to be recognized. I want to be successful at this. Right? Whatever it is I'm doing, recognizing the desire itself is really powerful. So we see the desire, and then we have to be quite, um, quite firm in our intention to stay with the felt experience, the desire itself, because it can be quite uncomfortable. Or it can be quite uncomfortable. The yearning itself can be quite uncomfortable. And our task is to stay with the yearning. Right? And the yearning can be about other things. Sometimes it's about, for instance, <coughs> one of my teachers called sucking your thumb. Sometimes it's just about like, it makes me feel a little bit safe to have the yearning and the desire. A great example of that is fantasy. Right? So we have fantasies about the desires we want, the people we want, the money we want, the success we want, the thousands of people who are going to listen to our teachings we want, right? Whatever it is we want. And just having that desire itself is like a little bit soothing to the mind. It makes us feel better. It's like, oh, that's going to happen. It's going to be okay, right? Just like sucking it up. So whatever the reason is, the problem is that there's often tension in that desire. Now, sometimes not. If there's not tension in the desire, then it's not going to be too difficult to be with it. But when the desire is wrapped up in our sense of self and protected and safety, which so often it is, then it's actually going to be quite uncomfortable to be with the desire, right? This experience in the body is going to be uncomfortable. And if we're willing to really be with that uncomfortable experience, what we'll find is it opens up. And we get to see just sort of what's underneath. It's like, oh, I'm scared. Maybe I can be with the fear. Or, oh, I really want to be loved. Which makes sense, right? I really want to feel safe. And we can be with that underneath. We do that process of the stripping away and separating, we can then also see clearly the separation between the wanting itself and the object. And then we can see the next thing, which is that the object is never going to fulfill the desire. Right? And we see that clearly when we're with the desire. That is, that object, whatever the object is, right? <laughs> it's never going to fulfill what that desire really wants. Because Let's say you want to be safe, right? Nothing you want is ever going to make you safe. Right? So you want to be successful, 
that desire for success, which is really a desire to be, you know, love, seen, whatever, 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 you're never going to be successful enough. Right? You can be the most successful person in the world, whatever that is. You could be a rock star and the president of the United States and right, <laughs> whatever it is that makes you like, the most successful thing in the world, right? But it's never going to make you be seen enough. Right? Never going to make you be seen enough. None of those pieces are going to give you what you want. And even the sense pleasure, right? You might be like, well, I have that cake. I'll get the sense pleasure from the cake. And you will get the sense pleasure from the cake if it's a good piece of cake. But it might not, right? <laughs> Hard to predict. But let's say it's exactly the piece of cake you wanted. And it might be. It was like, that was so good. And then... It's gone, right? Right. No matter how good the sense pleasure was, it's just temporary. No matter how many pieces you have. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. At some point, your stomach gets full, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. So you can't sustain it, right? It's unsustainable. It's unsustainable. <laughs> And when we see that gap, so all of a sudden there's a lot more wisdom around the desire, right? Because we see, oh, what does the desire really want? And then we can ask ourselves this question, which is what he's asking here, like, is what is our essence, which is a good question, how do I get what I really want, right? It's like classically, we want love and we eat instead, right? Because it makes us feel safe in some way. Maybe you don't do that, right? <laughs> In my childhood, love associated with being fed, so your connection is feeling bad in some way, right? So when we recognize that the food isn't going to give us what we really want, then we can ask ourselves, what is going to give us what we really want? And then we might notice that no thing out there is going to give us what I really want, right? What I really want. But awakening to what is true is going to give me what I really want. Awakening to the truth of the fact that I am fundamentally safe, that I am fundamentally loved, that I am fundamentally okay. And we practice and practice in part to awaken precisely to those truths, right? So what's so powerful about this is we've been doing this year, combining the cultivation practice with our mindfulness practice, right? So we start here where we start with the love practice, right? By seeing that love very clearly, we start to notice the truth of that love in our life. We start to notice, like, oh, how the world is supporting us in so many, so many ways. How many ways we're being loved and supported, how much kindness is in our life, even though we may not notice it always at the first, the first time, right? And we start to see, well, if I want to feel loved and safe, it's not that relationships aren't important and all the things I do in my life, because they are important, right? And they're great. But no relationship, no relationship, the best, most intimate relationship, our partner, etc., Nobody is going to make me feel loved and safe all the time, right? And if I look for that from my relationship, which I do sometimes, right? It's not going to be good for that relationship. Because the relationship is never going to give me that. Not because there's anything wrong with my partner, and not because there's anything wrong with me, right? Just because that's not possible in any relationship. Sometimes my partner is, like, not there, right? <laughs> or sometimes my partner is checked out and lost their own stuff. Or sometimes... Whatever, I'm not there, right? <laughs> like, whatever the reason is, no person, at some point my partner is going to die. And at some point I'm going to die, right? So it doesn't matter who it is or what the situation is, nobody can provide that for you, right? But it doesn't mean we don't have it. 
truth is we always already have it. And our task is just to awaken to the fact that it's there. That it's our fundamental nature. And one of the, what I would say is, we did that practice at the beginning where we try to notice people who have that strong abiding love for us. And, and in my experience, the people I choose for that are not necessarily people who kind of care for me most in a particular way, though that's also very important and powerful. Like my parents, for instance, care for me deeply, love me deeply, right? But the people who I see in them that recognition that we're sort of already loved, that I'm already loved, that I'm kind of just unconditionally loved, and that it's actually not about me in particular, which in some ways may feel like, well, I want it to be about me in particular, right? They want to love me. <laughs> but that actually, although they might have a special relationship with me, there's something more fundamental there, which is that basic love they show the world, right? And that's what's so powerful, and it's also what feels so safe and confident about it. Because if it's not about me, or about what I do, etc., then I also can't lose it, right? It's not dependent. It's what it's about, about being independent, right? So the Mishnah says, Love which is dependent on a thing. Right? The thing passes. The love passes. Right? Love that is not dependent on something. The thing passes. The love stays. Right? So when I think, when I do that practice, I often think of my sister. I think about her not only because she had a powerful particular love for me, which she certainly did, but because she had a basic, you know, response to the world, which was with a kind of unconditional love, which was pretty extraordinary. So I'm not going to read the rest of the text now of the Pisetzer. I'm going to pause in a second for a question. But he goes on and talks about the specific, and he says, for instance, we have some particular thing like wine or money. That thing becomes the essence with us. We get caught in that desire. And that's what it is to be a slave. Right? That's what it is to be a slave, is to be enslaved, to be trapped in that self-identification. And the essence of Pesach, he says, We have to have this exodus from Egypt and everything, and it particularly says, in freeing ourselves from that attachment. Right? To not have what he says, the this ava v'yira mitlameshet ba'ava yira megushemet yira me'adam ba'ava le'devarim nimuchim. Right, that is this kind of corporealized love that is fear of people, right? Fear of disapproval, of people not liking you, and love or desire for lowly things. Right? We get caught in these unhealthy ways of desire, these unhealthy modes of fear, because we're caught in that self-identification. And the medicine for that says the medicine is that ability to see, right? And that, of course, hopefully that was clear, is the work of mindfulness. I mean, that's what my, exactly what mindfulness does for us. It says, oh, I'm caught in this. Instead of the, I can be like, let's back up. Let's observe. I see the wanting. I'm with the wanting itself. Now that I'm with the wanting, I'm not caught in the object of the wanting. And then all of a sudden, there's all this liberation about the insight, which is, oh, I see the wanting. I see what I really want. What can actually get to me to what I really want? The mindfulness can help get me to what I really want. Maybe I should do more of that instead of going and fulfilling whatever the desire is, right? 
And it's not about the desire being bad again, right? Six minutes will just see the desire and be like, oh, I'd like to, I don't know, go for a run. It may be like, oh, that's a great idea. Let's go for a run. Good, let's go for a run. <laughs> and then I went for a run, and that was lovely, right? Like, nothing, pro- nothing problematic with pursuing the object of the desire. It's that the mindfulness gives us the spaciousness to see the difference between the wanting and the object, and seeing, oh, is that going to be a healthy and wise decision right now? And sometimes it is a healthy and wise decision. It's not, not doing what we desire. It's just seeing the gap and then making the decision about what's wise. I'm going to pause there. I'm going to leave a little bit earlier today because I had to bring my bike because of various reasons. It takes me a little bit longer to bike to the Tatsuna Rakazi than to take a taxi. Um, so I'm going to open it up just for the next few minutes uh, for any, again, as always, questions people might have, thoughts, experiences they want to share from the practice. Um, I had a general question, not really, as we were talking about today, but uh, when you talk about how you should see everything as a process, um, and I was wondering how that relates to the idea of particular particular events and moments, and how, you know, certain events like Shabbat and Hellraism are holy than others, and if everything is just a process, how do we relate to certain times and certain events, you know, in different ways? Everything's a process. <laughs> that doesn't mean that there aren't things out there in a colloquial sense. I'll give an example right now. You and me. You exist. You're not me. I'm not you in a colloquial sense, right? Like our bodies are different. We have different life experiences. You have particular special people who are special to you, as they should be. Your family, people in your relationship, friends, right? They're not the same as everybody else in the world. Great. No problem with understanding all of that. Problem when you start to think that there's some like thing called you and thing called me who are essentially separate and different. Because there's no thing called you. There's no thing called me. There's a process which we colloquially call me. This process is breathing. This process is taking stuff in and letting stuff go. This process is having the cells and the body change and transform all the time, right? There's nothing stable about this process, right? It's changing all the time. Experience is changing, my views are changing, my relationships are changing, all kinds of stuff is changing, right? Which doesn't mean there's no person here. It just means what are we saying when we think that there's a person here? So we start to think when the person here is a thing, then we get in big trouble. Why? Because then all of a sudden it's like, there's something I need to protect. And there's something which is this way, and it's threatening if I become a different way. Right? And there's something which has some particular qualities, and that is the way I am, and I need to defend that definition of myself because otherwise I don't know who I am. Right? But there's just a process. And it's the same thing with Shabbat. I mean, there's no thing called Shabbat, right? There's this thing we do, this process called Shabbat, which enters at a certain time and leaves at a certain time, and is helpful in making us aware of the divinity of this process in this moment. It's helpful for us to pause if we do it right, or it cannot be helpful at all, right? So, but there's no thing out there, right? So there's nothing wrong with things being special and setting aside time, and that's helpful and valuable, and all the ways we use ritual and practice, right, to support ourselves. But don't get confused about it being a thing, right? And that relates, of course, to how we respond to it, right? So let's say we mess up and we get something wrong. Does guilt arise? Does self-blame arise? 
Well, if that's arising, it's because in some part we've related some of those things as things. It's like there's this thing and I did the wrong thing. Or I'm a thing and I'm a bad thing. Right? There's no bad thing here. It's a process. There's you know, unhelpful things which happened as part of that process, unhelpful processes which manifested. I can recognize that. Oops. Right? But there's a lot of compassion and forgiveness around that. It's like, oh, yep, messed up there. I see that. How can I do better now? Right? So we don't have to let go anywhere of our colloquial sense of sort of dealing with the world. But the question is, how do we not reify it? Right? To make it into an object. To make it into a self. How do we not self it? So we do all the time. We do selfing. We create, make processes and we make them into objects. And then we get in a lot of problems because the object that we thought was stable changes. Oops. Right? The person we thought they had to be that way. Oops, they're different. The relationship we thought needed to be this way. Oops, it's different. The job I need to be this way. The thing job. Oops, it's different. The body we thought was supposed to be a certain way. Oops, it's different. Right? Because the body is just a process. It's changing all the time. Mostly going downhill, right? <laughs> like, that's the reality. Sickness, death, that's what's coming to all of us. It's okay, right? Maybe some of you are young enough where it's not going downhill yet. You're still in the uphill spot, right? But that'll change soon, right? <laughs> exactly. But like, that's okay. That's just the nature of the body. And it's fine as long as we're not clinging to it. You've been listening to the Or Halev podcast with Rabbi James Jacobson Mazels. For more information about Or Halev and how to stay up to date with our podcasts, visit the website at orhalev.org.